Welcome back to the Society Case Files podcast. My name is Robert Hazelton. I'll be your host. Today I'm going to talk about some video game stuff and the movie Satanic Panic, as well as just some general ideas about urban fantasy. Got a lot to talk about, so I'm going to dive right in. The first thing I want to talk about today is the Borderlands franchise. The third game just came out, so I wanted to go back and talk about the previous entries, then give a review about the new one. So Borderlands came out in 2009. That was the first game, and it was pretty neat. I loved the cel-shaded animation. I liked the co-op play. The characters were okay. I didn't really care for their their supers, if you want to even call them that, because they weren't that great. Uh, it was neat to co-op. Uh, I played it with my wife, but I have to admit, I never actually finished the first game, uh, even with all the cool little expansions they came out with. It just never really did it for me. It just, I don't know, I kind of found it to be a combination of too difficult and just not engaging enough. So for me, Borderlands 1 was a novelty that I didn't quite get into. Now, when Borderlands 2 came out in 2012, I did beat that game and I played the heck out of it, especially when they released uh, some of the new characters that I was able to uh, give a shot to. So those were quite a bit of fun and... The expansions were really neat, too. I didn't get into all of them. We did Captain Scarlet, but as far as the other ones are concerned, I didn't have an opportunity to play through those, mostly because the people I played with kind of had moved on to other things. So much as I wanted to try Tiny Tina's Assault on Dragon Keep, we just we never really got around to it. It's a pretty inexpensive title to get into, and if you want to play it on the next-gen consoles, like the PS4 or the Xbox One, you can get them both in the Handsome Collection, which has all of Borderlands 2 and the pre-sequel with all their DLC loaded up in them. So if you're desperate to give a shot to the older games of the Borderlands series, that's definitely the way to go. Now, let's move on and talk about Borderlands the pre-sequel. I jumped on this game right away, and I can't really tell you why. I can't remember what compelled me to buy it day one, but I will say that I had a lot of fun with it at the very beginning. Later on in the game, I have to admit that I started to struggle with the game because it had, it did a lot of things to annoy me. One of those was it liked to send you out to get something, and then when you came back, the guy would send you to the exact same place to get something else. So it sort of padded the the game time with annoying repeated trips out to the middle of well, let's just call it the middle of nowhere. And they were a lot of there were a lot of UPS quests in it too that just kind of drove me nuts. And while I did finish the game, I didn't go back and try any of the DLC, save one of the uh new uh, characters, the Baroness character who can freeze people. I played her for about eight minutes. Uh, I couldn't even remember which character I beat the game with until I looked up the different choices, and uh, I played Nisha, and she was actually really neat. I am sad that I forgot about her character. As I thought about the core Borderlands games, we'll talk about Tales from the Borderlands in a minute, I really didn't want to buy Borderlands 3. I was concerned that I just wouldn't like it, and I thought that maybe I should just give that one a pass. I I don't know what changed my mind specifically, other than I did some uh, 
some looking around. I watched a couple of videos. I saw that the skill trees were a little bit more complex, but the characters didn't interest me that much. I wasn't pulled in by any of them, but ultimately other friends were going to play it, so I decided I'd, I'd give it a shot. So I should say that even going in, I was leery, and I didn't think I'd like it, and it turns out that, no, I did not like the Borderlands 3 experience. And I'm going to try and articulate why without sounding like a negative Nancy, but there was just so many little things going into it that I knew I wasn't going to enjoy. So one of the things I really like in my gaming is I like to have some say as to how my character comes about and how my character looks. And Borderlands games always give you a character that you have to pick a a specific person. And that gives you the sense of style in their game. And it allows them to have that character interact and be part of the environment in a more uh, profound way than, say, making your character from scratch and picking your skills on the fly. Now, it's not to say other games haven't done it, but this one is sort of a co-op shooter, so they really want to develop a story in a specific way. Now, I do argue that that's not entirely necessary, because even in Borderlands 3, there are moments where my character will say something, and it's very clear that what the NPC says back to her is exactly what he would have said to any of the four characters, regardless of what they said. So that sort of nullifies the idea that we have to have a pre-designed character in order to fit the narrative they want to tell. All that said, I don't enjoy having those characters put in my uh, control, essentially. I prefer, even, even in Destiny, and I know that in Destiny it's an illusion because you only have three character choices, really. But the fact that I got to pick their their race, their gender, what... Uh, what they looked like for the most part, that gave me more ownership and more investment in the game than you get in, that I get in Borderlands. So because of the way they give you the character, I have this mindset where it's a single player game that happens to have co-op. I don't think of it as an online shooter, not to mention the fact that when you're playing alone, you don't see other players running around. You don't even see more than the three other players that you could ever get if you do co-op. So it doesn't have the same open world feeling that you might get when you go to the EDZ in Destiny 2 and see a bunch of players doing their own thing. And then at that point in Destiny, you feel like you're part of a bigger world. That doesn't happen in Borderlands. So with my mindset, I'm playing the game like it's a single player game. And then my buddies can jump in if if we want to. And we can play it old school land party style cooperatively or whatever. Now, all that said, the gameplay itself feels a lot like Borderlands 2. Uh, In fact, with the very minor changes that have been made, this really does feel like Borderlands 2.5 more than a full Borderlands 3 release. They didn't really reinvent the wheel. They didn't do a whole lot of extra stuff. Uh, It's just, it's, it's kind of more of the same, to be perfectly honest. Uh, One of the things that drives me the most nuts about this game involves the boss battles. They are so inconsistent. One boss battle, I absolutely wreck him in seconds. And then in another one, it's just a bullet sponge slog fest that is literally more frustrating than it is fun. In fact, there is a boss in the game. I'm not going to mention which one, but a YouTube video shows someone taking 40 minutes to beat him 
just because their build wasn't set up right to fight him, I guess. So anyway, there you have it. That's that's kind of the Borderlands 3 general experience. Some inconsistent boss battles, a uh, single player feel, very much Borderlands still, not a lot different. Uh, the story is not, I mean, I see a lot of people complaining about the story, but it's not bad. Uh, it's actually kind of fun. The The two villains are very difficult to beat uh, Handsome Jack. He was he was an amazing megalomaniac weirdo, uh, but they're okay. And the fact that you leave Pandora is really awesome. One of my big gripes about sci-fi games is that occasionally they just deposit you on a single planet and then the game could just as easily be set in any time period because you never leave. Well, in this game, you actually do get to travel to different planets. And they, they look they look pretty different for the most part. I think that, oddly enough, they didn't need to make it on different planets. They could have just as easily set these biomes up all over Pandora and you could have just stayed there. But it was nice to, to visit other places. And for the first time, you get to be in sort of a big city, although it is under siege. So it's not like you're seeing a lot of pedestrians. But... You do get to run around with uh, tall buildings and stuff in the background, and that was kind of fun. And then there's a there's a, a monastery where you can go visit that too, and that one was pretty short. And they got a moon, so there's a lot of different places to visit, and that part is a lot of fun. Uh, one of the things that does also drive me a little nuts is the characters talk a ton of crap. And they start doing it from the very beginning. And they set your characters up to sound like they are complete badasses. Uh, the Siren character, for example, is supposedly a legend. She's gone around and done everything she possibly can on these other planets, and so she's decided to become a Vault Hunter to really test herself. But it's hard for me to buy the fact that she was able to do all that stuff and then for whatever reason going to Pandora has sapped her powers to make her suck as bad as I did at the very beginning of the game. And as she progresses, sure, it actually does start to get to the point where she has some some right to say she's awesome. But prior to that, it is just a struggle to survive, even in some fairly straightforward gun battles, because, again, the enemies are just bullet spongy. And while Borderlands likes to boast that they have bajillions of guns, and while that is neat in theory... It actually is kind of annoying in one way because it is so inconsistent what you're going to get. It's not like I can tell a friend, hey, you really you do really well to get a Duke 44 and then maybe try and get these rolls. No, there's no there's none of that. I mean, these guns are practically well, they are straight up randomized. I mean, they're insane. Some of them are actually made useless by the randomizer. That part's kind of neat. But because of that. I will say that it took me 17 levels before I was able to get a gun that was was even remotely decent. Uh, in other words, took some of those bullet sponge enemies and made shorter work of them than I had been able to. Not to say that I was struggling per se, but that it wasn't quite as much fun until I got some of these better weapons much later in the teens. Uh, all around, I have to say that I recommend Borderlands 3 if you really love the previous Borderlands game and you've exhausted them, uh, the, both of them. And if you're really interested in in seeing how far you can get with this loot and, and find some neat guns, uh, if you go online, you'll see screenshots and videos of people's insane legendaries that they've, they've uh, located. 
So if you're really excited about that kind of stuff, then this game is absolutely for you. It's super fast-paced. There are moments where I actually had to pause the game because it was so nonstop in the action. I mean, we were constantly opening fire on something. That actually got annoying to me because I wanted to take a breath. But if you're in it to just have your pulse going the whole time, Borderlands 3 is definitely going to deliver. In fact, if you clear an area, it respawns. That's sort of the Borderlands way. Unfortunately, in some cases, that can really screw you over because if you die, you'll have to re-clear the area to get back to where you were before. So all around, I don't personally like Borderlands 3. It didn't really do it for me, and I am, uh, I'm not super happy that I picked it up. But I do see where it fits. I see the artistry. It's really pretty, and it, it feels good. It plays well. And I think that uh, if you if it was if it was made for you and you like that kind of game, you're going to absolutely love it. There's uh, there's there's no doubt in my mind. Now, if you look at Metacritic, the user reviews are around the the five level for PC, and that's kind of BS, I have to say, because a lot of them are people complaining about their computers not working for it, and then a bunch are complaining about the Epic Store, which is another topic uh, of discussion. And I think that those should be thrown out. I think that if you got rid of those, the critical reviews, which are in the high 70s, and the user reviews would be more on par in the 7 range rather than this abysmal 5 range that people gave it because of that. So in any event, let me talk about Tales from the Borderlands because that's a very different kind of game than the other ones. It's not a first-person shooter. It's a telltale game an adventure game, first and foremost. And I really enjoyed playing that game. Now, I didn't beat it, but I really liked it. And it was a really neat world to explore without having to be a Twitch gamer. So I think that that was a great way to introduce some people who thought, wow, Borderlands looks neat, but it's inaccessible to me because I'm not a a first-person shooter player. And it really introduced it to them. Now, Probably the difficult part of having uh, Tales from the Borderlands is the temptation for people who weren't necessarily good at a normal Borderlands game, played that game and said, I really got to try those games and then just found themselves frustrated. I did hear some complaints like that. But if you haven't played Tales from the Borderland, you can probably pick it up for a very inexpensive price somewhere. And I do highly recommend you give that one a shot. I I like the Telltale games quite a bit, and this one was uh, definitely one of their best. Um, I know that someone that I talked to said that uh, when they finished the game, it actually made them cry. So that's actually pretty neat, and I think that that speaks well of the storytelling that they managed to do in Pandora. It does supposedly stick to the humor very well and the first episode I played I can attest to that it was it was definitely true so in any event definitely try Tales from the Borderland if you haven't already and if you are a first person shooter fan and you're maybe not playing Destiny 2 or you don't intend to play Shadowkeep you might consider giving Borderlands 3 a shot now no you've got two hours of playtime if you buy it on the Epic Store and you can return it if you don't like it So I'm not entirely sure that that is enough time to make a decision on whether or not you like the game. I will say that I was at 115 minutes and I was thinking, "Ah, I just I need a little more time to decide. 
Unfortunately, it took me about four hours to realize that it wasn't really for me. I have got uh, 20 hours into the game now, and uh, I might finish it. It just depends on these next couple boss fights. But um, I'm definitely not going to be maxing out a character because I just can't even imagine going back through it on a higher difficulty level. So, uh, Borderlands, take it if you like it. The next thing I want to talk about is the Epic Store. And this will be a brief conversation because I just don't get it. I don't get people. You know, I hear a lot of people complaining about the Epic Store. And I just, I read these rants of, I'm not buying that game for six months because Epic. And, you know, it doesn't make sense. Uh, the first argument I hear is people complaining that there's no there are no user reviews. Well, let's be honest, user reviews are generally crap. Because if you go to Steam, you'll see a guy who has over a thousand hours just change his review to thumbs down because he's played it so long that now he's just grumpy about it. You'll see somebody give Rebel Galaxy a negative review because the developer decided to put Rebel Galaxy Outlaw on Epic Store exclusively. And it has nothing to do with Rebel Galaxy. So, while I think that reviews are important. I think that it's just as important to get them from another place. You don't necessarily need them on the store you're buying them from. Even if they have user reviews on Steam, I always go to Metacritic first. I always check the reviews there to see what they have to say. And that way I can get some critical reviews from magazines and pros, and I can see what the users are saying. I think that's just the logical way to do it. So Epic not having reviews shouldn't really matter to people, and yet it does. The other thing that they complain about is having another launcher. I guarantee that everybody has more than one launcher. I've got the Epic Store, I've got Blizzard, Bethesda, Uplay, Origin, the one for Escape from Tarkov. So I know that everyone has more than one launcher. So complaining that Epic is just one more launcher is just immature. The other thing that I think is really crazy is people should be jumping on the Epic Store side because developers who can make more money will make more games. And if you love their games, then them making more money is a good thing. And considering that they're getting so much more than they get on Steam, it makes perfect sense to me why they would go with the Epic Store. It's just, that's that's just smart. Now, I recognize that Epic does have some problems. When I got Rebel Galaxy Outlaw, it wouldn't install right away. It kept saying that it was unavailable, but I followed their stupid instructions and rebooted, and it, it worked fine. All around, I think it's just really ridiculous that we're giving that platform such a hard time simply because we're salty that it's not Steam. I mean, Steam has trouble too. I've had issues where I can't log into a game because of Steam. And Steam has their DRM. You know, I wonder if people give GOG the same trouble. Because they have their launcher too. Now, technically, you probably don't even have to use it. I haven't used GOG in a very long time, so I can't speak intelligently to that. But it is interesting that we have another platform that, that people aren't giving a hard time to. I think that it really just comes down to the exclusivity from Epic. The fact that they are talking these developers into, hey, you've got to sell it with us for a certain period of time 
But that makes sense. They need to make some money on that, and they want to be the platform of choice. That's how they're going to win this war with Steam, if if you want to call it that. So, all around, I am frustrated with hearing people complain about Epic and make make it such a big deal. I don't think it is a big deal. I think people should just use Epic and get over themselves and be happy that developers are making stuff for the PC still when the consoles are so prevalent and so easy to use. You know, they are still far simpler than getting a gaming PC going. Any jackass can just go buy a PlayStation and be playing a game 20 minutes after they get home. So I really think that PC gamers should stop being so elitist and accept Epic. So if you are one of the opponents of Epic, then I would be happy to hear your your argument and I'd be happy to address it. So please feel free to send me a message, comment on the podcast, whatever you'd like to do. I'd really like to talk about it more if you want to, but um, all around, it just, it really annoys me. I've got to be honest. It just seems elitist for no reason. I just recently saw the movie Satanic Panic that came out this year, and it's a horror movie that was just really funny. I have to say I would recommend it. The only caveat before I get into anything else is that it is it is a little gross. But I found the gore to be very unrealistic, so I don't think it's going to bother many people. So keep that in mind as as I go on and talk about it and uh, and and know that if you do have problems with something being icky even even if it's just implied or even if it looks unrealistic, if that stuff bothers you, this movie may not be for you. So the concept of the film is that a pizza delivery woman is uh, sent out to this very wealthy neighborhood, and when she brings the pizza there, the guy who receives the goods does not tip her, and she needs money for gas, so she actually breaks into the house, and she uncovers a satanic ritual. They find out she's a virgin, and craziness goes from there. This was definitely all about the comedy. It's also a little inappropriate. There's some some stuff in there that was pretty racy. Uh, There was not any graphic nudity, I can tell you that. And for the most part, I have to say, aside from some gore, it was pretty tasteful. Uh, Rebecca Romaine is in it, as is Jerry O'Connell, and they were both incredible. So... Satanic Panic is available to rent or buy on iTunes. I don't know about other uh, other platforms, but that's where we saw it. And I really do think that if you like horror movies, especially this time of year, you should jump on this and check it out. It was super, super fun. And I'm only sad that we just rented it because we weren't entirely convinced we were going to love it, but we did. And now I wish I would have just bought it. So that's how much we really enjoyed it. And definitely... If you're if you're into the the horror genre and you and you you like it to be funny, then then definitely uh, jump on board. Check out the trailer at the very least. Um, I've got a link below to the site for the iTunes um, page for it, and you'll be able to see it there. So, uh, speaking of movies, the other movie that I saw for the very first time, and this may come as kind of a surprise to some people, is the very first Friday the Thirteenth. Since we just had Friday the 13th, we decided to watch one of the movies. Uh, iTunes had a deal where um, on Friday the 13th, you could get eight of them for 12 bucks. So I picked that up 
and we watched the uncut version of the first movie. Um, having never really seen it, I can say that I went in with some expectations because, of course, people talk about this movie all the time. I knew the twist, of course, that it was Jason's mom and not actually Jason. But what I found interesting was that this being a template, essentially, for all the other movies that came after it in the slasher genre, uh, it, it held up okay. It was uh, it was fun to watch. I enjoyed it. Um, I think that it would suffer now from being compared to movies that are that did it better, that have done this genre better. I'm glad I have finally seen it so that I can check that off of my movie going list. One of the pieces of trivia I read that was kind of fun is that the MPAA found that the movie was gorier than it should have been. In other words, they let it through their rating uh, when they felt like maybe they should have been a little bit harder on it. So when the sequel was being made, they warned and said, hey, you better make this less gory. So the sequel is supposedly less gory than the first one. Now, that said, I am probably just jaded these days because I found the gore to be incredibly fake for Friday the 13th. But uh, I suppose at the time it may have looked a lot more realistic. I did appreciate that the director mentions the fact that they were riding on the success of Halloween and uh, sort of went in that direction. Now, as far as rules go, because now we've got all of these things like uh, the final, the final girl, and scream queens, and we've got uh, bad things happen to those who are not virtuous in them. One of the things that I also found neat is that when they wrote the movie, they were basically just saying, "No, really, it's just bad things happen to good people sometimes." He didn't have any sort of plot or plan to create those tropes, which we now sort of take for granted. So that's kind of neat too. Now, speaking of that, there is a movie that I absolutely recommend. I'm not going to talk a whole lot about it tonight, but it's a movie called The Final Girls. It came out in 2015 and it should not be confused with Final Girl, which came out the exact same year and even has one of the cast members uh, from, from the movie I'm talking about. It is a spoof, but also homage to the camp slasher horror genre. It has so much more heart than it deserves to have. When I saw the box art, I thought, wow, this is just going to be straight cheesy. We bought it and watched it, and I have to say that it was it surprised me on every level and was just fantastic. So, again, The Final Girls. Be sure to check that one out. I'll have the link down below. It was, it was a lot of fun, and I think that you would enjoy it even today. Finally, I kind of want to talk about some urban fantasy stuff. I'm working on the next Glamour and Shadows book in the Society Case Files world. It's called Full Circle, and it has become a lot more than what I mentioned in an earlier episode about the uh, werewolf character. And while he is still a main character, there's now a huge subplot going on with an investigation where the society detectives are involved in there and they're doing things. So I was, I was sitting thinking about it today while I was working through some of the chapters about uh, the different kinds of monsters we see in urban fantasy and how they sort of relate to our modern day. Uh, and I think it's really neat to have, for example, my main character is a fairy and she's living in the modern day. And, you know, the traditional sense of a fairy is this sort of ethereal character who is mischievous and and worked very well 
in, say, the Victorian era or even in the medieval times when there wasn't technology to distract us from what they were doing. But now, with all of our high-tech stuff, TVs, video games, and everything else, I really love taking my fairy character and having her embroil in all of that mythos the video games. I mean, she's a big gamer in my world. She loves movies, so she's really up on all this stuff. In fact, it got to the point where occasionally I have to do research myself into things that I'm not necessarily as interested in to try and keep her more current. So what I really love about that and what I love about urban fantasy in general is that we're taking something that maybe we grew up with or that we've always loved and we are bringing it into a very familiar setting so that we can sort of explore new problems and avenues for these characters. Because in a lot of ways, they're sort of like a mutant from the X-Men in the sense that they don't necessarily feel like they fit in and they're doing their absolute best to do it. And in some cases, they're doing so by living in plain sight. But that doesn't necessarily mean that they feel like they're included in society itself. So attacking that trope and having these characters, in a sense, overcompensate by just knowing all of the video games and all the anime and all the movies and and different celebrity personalities, I think it's really interesting to see those characters sort of interact with their, their, their companions. And some of their companions are less inclined to care if they fit in. So they think, well, that's really weird. You're you're being very much like an exaggerated human right now, and I don't get that. So that's that's sort of how my interactions go in the Society Case Files world. I think it's really neat to see how other authors do that too. And in some cases, they just make it to where the supernatural world and the human world are combined. So, you know, the, the cops call up somebody... And they say, hey, this is one of yours since you're a necromancer. We're going to need you to come down and help us out. So it's very, very cool because as much as it seems like the urban fantasy genre would be pretty one-dimensional, we have so many options on how we can approach and utilize it to tell stories. I know that in mine, if you've been keeping up with the story or if you've read any of them, There is a concept with my characters where they have talked about integration with human society, where maybe someday in the very far future or even in the near future, depending on how things go, the characters would actually find themselves living right alongside human beings and everyone would know everything. But, of course, we've got some concerns with that because, you know, vampires feed on people, demons are scary, and... Uh, werewolves are also frightening, and anytime we have this sort of evolutionary tract in the human mindset, and this is why the X-Men are in such such trouble, then the human beings start to get kind of freaked out, and that's where we start to get the segregation and that sort of thing coming up. So I guess that ultimately, as a writer or creator, you really have to decide what sort of social topics you want to address and tackle. I have some of those racist... Uh, Uh, topics in my stories where my characters do struggle with people being prejudiced against another species of supernatural. And it comes from very much the same kinds of things that we see in real life, whether it be, well, your kind used to hunt mine uh, for sport, and I really doubt that you feel any different than them. 
regardless if they do or not. It's just very interesting to really have these avenues, much like I've talked about in previous podcasts about how science fiction and fantasy should be challenging the things that we have as problems now, whether they are social conventions or things like climate change or uh, the use of fossil fuels, prejudice, gerrymandering, whatever you want to attack. These are the things that we should be casting a light on. And, you know, one of the reasons we do that is not necessarily to be preachy. You know, that's not the artist's reason for making these decisions. It's so that we can help people see the absurdity of a situation and show why it should not be there. Why there should not be racism or gun violence or whatever we want to address. The idea is is to put it in a fantasy setting so that, number one, yeah, you might be entertained by what you're watching because you love those characters. Let's talk about, for example, Star Trek or the Orville. You really love those people, but now you're watching them be confronted with what we deal with all the time, just in an either more extreme way or an alien way. And that way you're, you're like, oh, yeah, I, I, I guess I can see that. And hopefully it does change your opinion a little bit or at least challenge you to think about it. And the best science fiction, the best fantasy, the best urban fantasy should challenge you to think and become emotionally invested so that when you think about your day-to-day uh, issues, whether it's that you see on Facebook another school shooting and you read about it and you, you, you want to do something about it, you should be able to relate to enough fantastic weight behind these convictions to to move on. And I think that literature, movies, TV, they all really can help us sort of work out our concerns and frustrations with the world that we're surrounded with. I think that it doesn't have to just be frivolous uh, entertainment. It doesn't have to be a distraction all the time. It can be fun, but also challenging. And I'm, I'm really pleased to see so many things challenging uh, us these days. So it's really important that art in itself continues to be a challenging medium as opposed to uh, giving in to what I see some people say, hey, your job is to entertain. Stop taking a political platform. Stop soapboxing. No, that's no. <laughs> soapboxing, now I will admit, there is a fine line between blatant soapboxing and and integrating challenges within your, your narrative. That, that's absolutely true. And I do believe that there is a balance to it because obviously if the work is not entertaining, it's not going to attract people to watch and you're going to miss your point anyway. So uh, it should have some balance. You, you do have to remain true to your characters. If you have a set of characters, you're creating a long-running series or whatever, you can't just decide to betray that character in order to get your point across. And I have seen that, and that is frustrating, and it really should be avoided. But in any event, that's the difference between fantastic writing and sloppy writing where you were just angry and passionate and had to get something out there. So anyway, long story short... I think that urban fantasy has really become just as strong a medium as science fiction or fantasy traditional uh, to make a, a stand and to really challenge us with the different types of, of social issues that we've seen in the past. 
Are there any books or movies that you've experienced that you've seen this work? Or even better yet, are there any that you've seen it fail dramatically? I would love to hear from you. If you do think of any, please comment on the podcast, send me an email, send me a message. I would love to discuss that as well because it'd be really neat to sort of analyze what worked or did not work in any specific piece of fiction. All right, that's it for this week. Thank you very much for listening to the show. I appreciate you stopping by. If you liked what you heard and you want to hear more, be sure to check out our website and keep track of the schedule. You can find us at www.societycasefiles.com or www.roberthazelton.com. Don't forget to follow or support the project at ko-fi.com slash societycasefiles. Thank you very much. Have a great week.